You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Um, if you're joining us too, we are coming to the close of our Sermon on the Mount uh, sermon series. And we've been looking at this for, for really uh, over a half a year. And it's been such a rewarding and transforming, and I'd say even just personally deeply convicting sermon series. Um, the reason why, too, is because it's, it's preached by Jesus. It's his most famous sermon, and it's also the sermon where he unpacks for us and gives us all sorts of insight into what a flourishing, thriving, filled life often looks like. And uh, I couldn't help but think of as we get closer to July 4th in America, we have kind of that declaration of independence, and inside of it is that statement of the pursuit of happiness, that even our country, even America is based on this notion of pursuing happiness, and we have all sorts of different ways that people define that. Uh, we, we get up each day with kind of this happiness pursuit that's deeply embedded and wired into us that we're living out through all of our actions on a day-to-day basis. And the world around us is actually preaching to us constantly and is actually quite loud in what it tells us the pursuit of happiness should look like. For many of us, it often feels like getting caught up in the rat race of the accumulation of stuff. If I can just get more things, if I can just get more toys, if I can just get more possessions. But even as we were reminded last week by Rodney and Dave, just a reminder that there's, there's really just a big junkyard at the end of that trail. That often when we die, there's really not much left in that pursuit. And maybe for some of us, it's, it's more on the consumptive side. If I can just consume enough relationships, enough experiences, enough, you know, in some ways, uh, new uh, vacations along the way, then I'll finally achieve happiness. Or maybe for some of us, it's, it's comfort. You know, if we can just get a big enough house with a nice enough pool, with a nice enough whatever it is, couch, lazy boy, snuggy, whatever it is for you, we will finally be comfortable and we'll be happy. And the Sermon on the Mount is radically countercultural. Um, it speaks against these narratives that are often so popular in our culture as to what the pursuit of happiness should look like. And if anything, I think we should really hear Jesus out. Why? Because he's not just someone who knows about life, but rather he made life. And if Jesus made life, he's going to have some insight into what the best life looks like, even when it seems contradictory or contrary to the world around us. In fact, he's reminded us throughout the Sermon of the Mount such things as that our real wealth is not in our stuff, but rather is in the kingdom of God. That in a world that often places a premium on competition and division, there is a deep value and preoccupation for those who are in Christ to pursue peace. That leadership and power is not about dominance and privilege, but about getting low so that you can serve others. That anxiety is really just praying to ourselves when we really have a powerful heavenly father who wants to hear from us. That purity is better than momentary pleasure and that our motives really do matter because they are where our actions have their origins. Such powerful truths that Jesus reminds us of. And we, we arrive at today, we're really just looking at verse 12, which is in some ways one of the most famous verses in all the Bible. In fact, even if you're a Christian or not, you've probably heard this verse before, the golden rule as it's known. And it's really a short verse. It's not that long. It's not that complicated at face value. It really makes a lot of sense. Jesus just says, so whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. 
So how did it get the name, the Golden Rule? Well, along the way, as uh, there was a Roman emperor named Alexander Severus, he inscribed it in his throne room on a golden plaque, and that's where it picked up the name. So it's not like Jesus actually ascribed this and said, this is the Golden Rule, but rather along the way, uh, the Roman emperor Severus put it on a plaque, and, and henceforth, that's what it was known by. And the golden rule, it's become so, so known, it's so popular, it's so familiar that, it, that it's talked about even by some in, in ethics classes, uh, classes and, and even just in secular philosophy as like, this is a really good ethical thing to do. This is a, a good behavior and, and it, it becomes very familiar. And familiarity is not always our friend. Sometimes familiarity can be our foe, especially when it comes to the Lord doing his work in our life. We, we begin to think we've heard something before, that we know it entirely, that it's altogether routine and familiar to us. But what I'd challenge us today is to, to set aside maybe notions of thinking we, we, we already know this, we understand it, it makes sense to us, and to just say, is there something more here? Uh, as I said, familiarity isn't always our friend. In fact, Jesus' little brother, he would write later on in the book of James, uh, chapter 1, verse 22, he said this. He said, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And I don't know about you, but when I hear the golden rule, I will tell you there is a wide chasm between my understanding of it intellectually, mentally, and my application and living it out. And I'm proud, I don't think I'm the only one in the room with that reality, Right? So it's easy to understand. It's easy to comprehend. It reminds me in some ways of like, you know, I'm having that conversation just like you with, with my little kids. And we have that, hey, after dinner's over, make sure you take your plate to the dishwasher. Make sure you clean your plate. And I have to say that, oh, you know, about 12 times a week, you know, or it's just, it's a pretty routine thing. And my, my oldest, Grace, she'll say to me, oh, daddy, I, I know, I know. And I'll just always gently remind her, well, you don't really know until you do. You don't really know until you do, because once you begin to know, especially in the way that, 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 that often the, the, the Jewish writers would write in literature, there was a deep relationship and connection, not just in knowing something mentally, but living it out experientially and existentially. And so I think there is still so much for us to look at this morning, not just on the side of, do we understand this? Can we comprehend it cognitively? But can we live it out experientially? And the golden rule is, in some ways, a lot of folks have said, well, it's not necessarily unique to Jesus. It's not necessarily a unique teaching, even to Christianity. There was variations and versions of the golden rule throughout much of ancient literature and other religious traditions. In fact, uh, Jewish rabbi Hillel in the third century BC before Christ, this is what he said. Here was a variation, a version he said. He said, whatever you hate, don't do that to other people. Whatever you hate, don't do that to other people. And then he said the rest of the Old Testament, that it's just commentary on that truth. Whatever you hate, don't do that to other people. Confucius had a similar saying. Here's what Confucius said. He said, don't do to other people what you do not wish for yourself. Don't do to other people what you do not wish for yourself. So this is, this is a version, this is a variation of the golden rule and what Jesus seems to be teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. But there is one key distinction, there is one subtle distinction, there's one tweak that Jesus makes on this golden rule that changes it entirely, that changes it all together. 
that really in some ways broadens and opens up the scope of what Jesus is saying that's altogether distinct and different than any other world religious leader has ever said or any writer has ever come close to. This one seemingly small change changes everything. But first, in order for us to understand that, I just want us to think through for a second, if we look at the golden rule as the Rabbi Hillel or Confucius are putting it forward, they're putting it in the negative, aren't they? They're basically saying, once again, whatever you hate, the things you don't like, the things that seem awful to you, and you guys could all make a mental list, right? I'm sure even today, as you were driving to church, you maybe thought, I don't like if someone cuts me off, I don't like if someone takes the aisle seat, I don't like if someone, you know, whatever it is, it takes my favorite parking spot. You can think of things that you don't like, and then they're basically saying, don't do that to you. I would say this is actually the golden rule looking at it in the negative because it's the negative sense of the ethical command. It's the negative. It's just basically focusing on the things that you shouldn't do to people because you wouldn't want them done to yourself. Um, the, the, the Bible actually says these are, these are sins of commission. And we often think that way, don't we? Like, really what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow Jesus is I'm supposed to avoid these sins of commission. Commission means I'm I'm doing things that I ought not to do. I'm doing things that I should not be doing. I'm doing things that I know are wrong. I'm, I'm committing a sin. And, you know, we can list these off. They're all over the New Testament, and they're absolutely true. Sins of selfish ambition, sins of fits of rage, or lying, or hypocrisy, or envy, or deceit, or murder, and violence, or gossip, and slander, and arrogance and boastfulness, disobeying parents. These are all deep sins of of commission. But the thing about sins of commission is that you can, in some ways, think that you fulfilled, and you can, you can fulfill the negative understanding of the golden rule just by doing nothing. Just by doing nothing. Um, As long as I don't hurt someone else, as long as I don't cause suffering to someone else, as long as I'm not harming someone else, then I'm good, right? Well, if you look at the golden rule in the negative, that's absolutely what's being said. It's just saying don't do bad things to other people. And my fear is in some ways, this is often how people have come to view what it means to be a follower of Jesus or even Christianity, but this is actually known as religion. This is known as religion in the sense of it's really just mainly about my performance and the external and me remaining outwardly, at least in the appearance side, pure. I'm, 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 I'm not doing the things that I'm not supposed to do. The Pharisees were all over this, right? The Pharisees, these are characters that show up all throughout the Gospels that Jesus is interacting with. And Pharisee really just means religious separatist. So their entire posture was, you know what? I just need to avoid the world because the, all the sins out there, all the bads out there. And as long as I don't do bad things, as long as I don't do things that I'm not supposed to do, then me and God are cool. That all that matters is the vertical relationship between me and God. They cut out in many ways the whole horizontal aspect of what it looked like between them and their neighbor. See, religion is often focused on prohibition and restraint. It makes us believe that as long as our behavior is restricted from doing certain bad things, that we are okay with God. That really what it means to follow Jesus is just to white-knuckle it, to not do the really bad things, and in some ways then we are okay with God. It doesn't have anything to do with a changed heart, though doesn't have anything to do with affections and desires and passions and purpose and meaning and longings and hopes and dreams. It's really just asking the question, what is the bare minimum? 
What's the bare minimum? And often, when it looks around at the world, it often goes, that's not my problem. I don't have to concern myself with that. I'm not hurting them. I'm not harming them. I'm not causing trouble to them. So it's not my problem. Um, Probably in the last 60 years, as America has become much more of an individualistic country, uh, most people, without knowing it, they subscribe to what ethical teachers will call the minimalistic ethic. The minimalistic ethic, it's probably the most popular ethical belief in America functioning today. And here's what it really means. Is, is, uh, and you'll hear it often in, in, in ideas such as this. Just don't do things to other people that you don't want done to yourself. As long as no one gets hurt, what's the big deal? As long as you don't hurt anyone else, then you should be able to do whatever you want. This is a minimalistic ethic. This is believing that your only obligation to your neighbor, to your family, to your community, to your church, is not to do harm to them. This really seems to be the height of ethics that we can kind of get to often as Americans. The problem with this, though, is this minimalistic ethic, this way of thinking, uh, has a, a deep hidden assumption inside of it that your life is much more like a thimble than it is a lake. That really what happens inside your world, your behaviors, your actions, what you do and what you don't do doesn't reverberate out, doesn't ripple out, doesn't have consequences upon others. In fact, I used to have that conversation with a friend of mine all the time up in Seattle. He's like, I don't see the big deal. Everyone should just be able to do whatever they want as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. And I said, well, that'd be great if we all lived on our own island, but we live in a community where obviously what I do has implications and impacts on you. And what you do, the minute you step into a community, in a family, in a workplace, in a neighborhood, anywhere, your actions have reverberations into the lives of other people. The minimalistic ethic just doesn't work. Also, here's the other problem with it. The minimalistic ethic assumes way too much knowledge on your part and on mine, as if we could presume to understand the totality, the far-reaching nature of all of our actions and their consequences upon the world around us. I'm not smart enough to figure that out. I'm not smart enough to know the domino effect of my sin into the generations that often come before me. And we know this. Every single one of us knows this. I've sat in enough counseling meetings over the years in my pastoral ministry to know that often people are still feeling the effects in their family of origin stories or the generational sin stories that they're living out of, that the minimalistic ethic is bankrupt and broken as they still experience the abuse and the trauma and the brokenness and the betrayal and the hurt and, the, and the, the wounds from generations ago. We know that our behavior is so much more than, I just shouldn't hurt anyone. Because in some ways, that is asking all the wrong questions. It's a question that Jesus really doesn't even want to entertain, that he's not that concerned about. This way of thinking is the American way of thinking. And it's really a thinking process that goes, do I have to? Do I have to? What do I have to do? What is the minimum? Um, you know, sometimes my girls, when, when they make a mess around the house and uh, one of them is maybe uh, more responsible for it than the other, I'll just, you know, encourage slash command instruct the other one to jump in. Hey, you, you, there's Legos all over the floor. Can we pick these up? And what's the response to the other one? Do I have to? <laughs> I didn't do it. What they're, they're appealing to, sin, to, to, to commission. My actions were not involved. My behavior was not involved. I didn't create the situation, so I'm not involved. That's not my problem. In some ways, they're perfectly in line with the golden rule if you 
literally look at the way Confucius taught it or the Rabbi Hillel taught it. But Jesus, gosh, he's so brilliant. I love this. I mean, we can't get past it. This is the stuff that's so stunning to me that often reminds me we really have to be dealing with the God-man, with this level of insight and brilliance that Jesus brings. So he makes this one small tweak as we now look at the golden rule and the way Jesus taught it. And I would say it's the golden rule in the positive. Let's read it again. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also for them. For this is the law and the prophets. Do you notice this is not in the negative? It's saying, it's not saying don't do the things that you don't want done to you. Instead, it's saying, what are the things that you want done for you? What are the ways you do want to be treated? What are the ways you do want people to love you? It's massively proactive. It's thoughtful. It's got a preoccupation with others and their problems and their circumstances and their realities. It's not sitting on the sideline going, not my problem. I hope you figure it out. But instead it's saying, I'm intensely curious about how I can engage, how I can lean in, how I can be a blessing. And we often miss this side of what it means to follow Jesus. Once again, we can, we, can, we can quickly become Pharisees. We can quickly become people going, I didn't do anything. It's not my fault. I didn't make the mess. I didn't cause the problem. So me and God are good. But that's not at all what J- Jesus' little brother James even said. Check this out, what he says in chapter four of the book of James. He says, so whoever knows, whoever knows, not once again, just in the sense of like cognitively, but whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, He is in sin. Isn't that amazing? This is actually called sins of omission. So you have sins of commission, which is, I did did all the things that I wasn't supposed to do, but we also have to realize that Jesus is equally concerned, especially for church people, especially often for religious people. He's equally concerned with all the things that you should have done that you didn't do. You knew the right thing to do. You knew you should have engaged. You knew you should have walked toward that mess. You felt the spirit convicting you. And yet, you didn't. And James is clear, this is just as much a sin. Now, if you ascribe to the golden rule once again, the negative version, it's not a sin, but Jesus is tweaking it, and he's saying it's now in the positive. And this has altogether amazing ramifications. One thing I do want to say, though, don't miss that little phrase at the end of our verse. It says, for this is the law and the prophets. Jesus is wanting to provide boundaries and context for what he means in the sense of how to bless and love and do justice for other people. So it doesn't become this squishy subjectivity of like, well, I wish someone would give me a Ferrari, so someone should give me a Ferrari. Or I wish someone, whatever it is, it's it's not that whatsoever, but rather it's bound within the context of what Jesus believes, of what the the Old Testament has taught throughout the laws and the prophets, of saying this is what it would look like to contribute to the flourishing of human beings. This is what it would look like to see them more made into the image of their creator. This is what it would look like to help them thrive in the context of what the Sermon on the Mount is teaching us about what the good life really is. So it's not squishy personal subjectivity, but rather it's theological robust teaching on what God and Jesus tell us about what a human is and how they flourish. But think about the implications of this. Think about the ramifications. I just want all of us, let's just pause for one second and do this. Do this with me. In your mind, think of one thing. Think of one thing that you would want done for you.
Think of that inner conversation you've had this week with yourself of what you would want done for you. Maybe you wanted someone to notice you. Maybe you wanted someone to just listen to you. Maybe you wanted someone to come near to you. Maybe you wanted a friend. Maybe you wanted someone to just encourage you. And Jesus is teaching, if that desire, that, that deep longing, that, that, that thing that you want others to do for you, he's saying, actually, take that very thing and do that for someone else. So whatever it is that just came to your mind a minute ago, whatever it is that when you took a moment to pause, you should say, how can I do that to someone else this week? How can I begin to take that holy burden, that holy desire, and begin to embody it and live it out and demonstrate it? You know, students, think about this. Like, if, if you're at school, just ask yourself, if, if you were new and alone, if you were the new kid at the lunch table, if you were the new kid in class, what would you want someone to do for you? Is it enough to just not call them names or to not bully them or to not single them out? Is that, is that enough? No, actually, the, the golden rule is Jesus is teaching and the positive is that you should do for them exactly what you would want them to do for you. To draw near, to invite them in, to sit with them at lunch, to spend some time with them. What about you? If, if, if one of your coworkers is struggling, let's say they're falling behind or they just don't seem to be grasping it at work, let's just say that you can tell they're really on the margins. Do you sit there and go like, gosh, man, Bob, doesn't look like it's going well for him. I don't know if he's going to make it. Or what would, what would you want done for you? Would you want someone to come over and say, hey, I think I can help you. Let me come alongside you. How can I teach you that? How can I encourage you? How can I equip you? Or what if you were moving into a neighborhood? What would you want your neighbors to do for you? It's not enough that they just don't like, you know, TP your house and, you know, send you hate mail. It's, you would want some proactive things too, right? Maybe some cookies and a conversation and an invite to dinner. Jesus is saying it's not enough not just to do harm to your neighbor, but you need to bless your neighbor. This changes everything, doesn't it? It begins to have us ask a completely different set of questions. Jesus is inviting us, that thing that came to your heart, that thing that came to your mind of saying, that's the change I want to see. That's the blessing I want to experience. He's now inviting you to do that, to do that very thing. What you wish someone would do for you, you need to do for someone else. This is a radical teaching. Often we think we need to wait for someone to do first for us before we're going to do for someone else, but that's not at all what Jesus is teaching here. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, you do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This way of thinking, the positive golden rule that Jesus is teaching, this is the question it asks. It says, what would love have me do? What would love have me do? Not do I have to, but what would love allow me or have me do? What would love have me do? Do you notice the, all of a sudden the, the focus is not on me. The self-centeredness of do I have to is still about me. And what would love have me do is about others. 
It's lifting up my head. It's getting over myself. It's stepping out of my pride. It's walking in humility. It's a deep demonstration that, that this life is a b- much bigger thing than about me, but rather it's about me giving my life away for others. Jesus brings incredible texture and realness to this, this truth, to this command in the story of the Good Samaritan. I just want to read it to you and, and listen to this. I just want, want you to hear this. I know this is a familiar story to us, but I want you to think of, again, once the negative side of the golden rule and the positive side of the golden rule. So in Luke 10, starting in verse 26, someone comes up to Jesus and says, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's right there once again. How do you love yourself? Love your neighbor that way. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? There is so much of that in my heart and I think in the heart of many of us. That in some ways, the the expansiveness of the positive golden rule about how big it makes it in me looking around at the world around me and meeting needs, I want to shrink it back down. I want to still feel justified because I realize that if, if, if really I'm understanding this rightly, it feels like all the gates are open of how many people I need to concern myself with and how many people I need to be willing to bless. And Jesus does not leave him any room for escape. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the golden rule in the positive sense at play. Is it saying, I, Jesus is saying basically I'm removing all the reasonableness, all the sense of like boundaries, and all the sense of in some ways you trying to squirm and wiggle out of loving your neighbor, of blessing your neighbor, of being neighbor-focused, of practicing neighbor love in this parable. We often want to kind of just put this in a box, and Jesus instead is saying, how do I expand the scope? You know, uh, once again, you see the two first guys in the story, they are religiously pure men, most likely, a priest and a Levite. They're, they're men in some ways who are probably not out committing all sorts of bad sins of commission, but yet they have an opportunity to bless, to love their neighbor. And what do they do for the sake of like maintaining their own religious purity? They go to the other side of the road and they walk around so they can say, not my problem. Do I have to? 
Do I have to? Not my problem. Jesus is reminding them, this is a person regardless of, of if they have anything in common with you. If they come from your tribe, if they have a similar culture as you, if they have similar politics as you, if they have a similar pedigree as you, if they have a similar voting preference as you, it doesn't matter. They're still your neighbor. This positive golden rule is altogether so hard to keep, and it busts open the doors of often those narrow confines in which we want to offer help, right? I mean, think about how we often restrict that ourselves. We quickly come down to like things like, do they deserve it? Will it even matter? Will it even make a difference? And Jesus is just not even concerned with any of these questions. He's just looking and saying, this person's in need. Will you show them mercy? I think many of the ails inside of the church, even currently and even over the last 60 years, have to do because we have not understood the golden rule in the positive sense. When you look at often segregation in, our ch- in, in the church, when you look at segregation in the country, often we can settle for a minimalistic ethic of just going, I'm not doing any harm myself. I'm not hurting anyone else myself. So that must be all that's required of me. What is Jesus saying? When you see that mess, when you see that person who's broken, when you see that person who looks different from you, are you going to walk across the, the, the street? Are you going to walk into the mess or are you going to walk away? You know, I, I, I even just, I love this church in the sense of how much we care about the orphan. I think it's such an incredible ministry that leans into the positive sense of the golden rule because it does, it asks, it forces us all to ask and wrestle deeply with, if I was an orphan, what would I want done to me? If I was without a family, what would I want done to me? If I didn't have a mom and dad, what would I want done for me? Or think about if you didn't know God. Think about if you had never heard the gospel. What would you want done for you? That's why I love this church, how in we are on church planting and sending missionaries to hard to reach places. It's us saying in some sense, what would we want done for us if if we weren't being discipled, if we didn't have a church community, if we didn't know the Lord? The the church has never been a place where it's been about, man, we've got ours. We've got our community. We've got our needs met. We've got our thing going on. And we look at the rest of the world and go, not our problem. But rather it says that is our problem because those are our neighbors. And Jesus doesn't leave us any room to wiggle out. He doesn't ask us to ask the question, do I have to? But rather, what does love have me do? Yet, I know this is hard, okay? I know this is really hard. In fact, here are some of the reasons it's really hard. It requires us often to run into a mess. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but helping people, it's often really messy. Have you ever gotten into a really sticky situation when you've decided to help someone and before you know it, it's gone way more deep and it's gotten way more complicated than you ever imagined? And sometimes it gets way messy. I imagine when when the Samaritan is walking by a guy who's been beaten up and robbed and he's looking at that, that does not feel like a very clean cut situation. It feels very messy. It feels very inconvenient. It feels very hard and it's going to be very costly. And when it's costly, it really begins to expose what you love the most. 
The reason this is so hard is because often in the moment of it being hard, it exposes what we truly love and worship, what we truly believe is the good life. Is it my comfort? Is it my own convenience? Is it my own boundaries? And those get blown up. And Jesus invites you into this radical journey where you follow and trust him, even when it's messy, even when it's complicated, even when it's hard, even when you don't know how it will end. Which is another reason we step out of this often is we don't know how it will end. And we don't even know if it will be successful. I mean, gosh, I've helped lots of people over the years and by earthly measures, it was not successful. It did not go well for me. Maybe you've helped someone along the way and instead of getting a big thank you card and a hug, you got ingratitude. You got more sense of grumbling. You got entitlement. Actually, maybe the situation even got worse. But that's what we need to understand too. The golden rule is not about karma. Some people read karma into the golden rule and we don't believe in karma Karma would have you believe that the golden rule means, hey, this is, this is basically, uh, if you do good, good things will happen to you. That's not what Jesus is saying. Absolutely not what he's saying. In fact, Jesus often did a lot of good for others, and it did not go well for him. Jesus was often the one who would use his words to bless and encourage and to give life and to serve. And instead, people spit upon him and cursed him and took advantage of him. But Jesus didn't check out. Jesus didn't quit. He kept asking himself the question, what would love have me do? Not, do I have to? Here's the other one too. I think oftentimes when we are going like, man, if I'm going to treat people the way I want to be treated or bless those who have blessed me or I want to I love people the way I want to be loved, we're waiting for someone else to go first. You know, we're waiting and saying, okay, well, as soon as someone pours into me, then I'll pour into someone else. Or as soon as someone has me over for dinner, then I'll start having other people over for dinner. Or as soon as someone starts encouraging me, then I'll start encouraging others. I remember as a kid uh, growing up, me and some of my buddies, we would gather at this lake and probably for about three weeks, we noticed this old rope swing that had been there and none of us had ever seen anyone use it to try to cross uh, over the lake or to go far out into it. And so for about three weeks, we all just kind of stood on the ledge, nudging one another saying, you go first. No, you go first. No, you go first. No, you go. And finally, someone had to go. Finally, someone just had to do it. And when they did, the floodgates opened up. We all jumped in. We saw the fun that they had. We saw the excitement we had. they had. We saw the adventure it led to. And what I'd say, once again, whatever that thing was, when you thought, this is how I would love someone to treat me. This is what I'd love someone to do for me. Go first. Do it this week. See, the, the, the incredible paradox that I just can't get over is time and time again, Jesus seems to be teaching us that the more we try to hold on to our life, the more we'll lose it. And the more we're willing to lose our life, the more we'll actually have it. The more we ask the question, do I have to? And not my problem, and what's the minimum? We think we're holding on to life, but we're actually losing it. Jesus wants to set you free from that. Jesus wants to set me free from that. He wants to remind me, he wants to remind you that if we are truly going to live, if we are going to be resurrected people, we first have to die. You've got to lay down your life. 
You've got to lay down your pre preferences. You've got to lay down your comfort. You've got to lay down your conveniences. You've got to lay down your possessions. And, and I won't lie to you. This is hard. This is a death. But on the other side of that is everlasting life. Such a deal. But here's, here, here's the bottom line, okay? I stink at the golden rule. Um, it's still a law. It's a rule. And by, by nature, um, I, I just can't live up to it. All week long, I found myself just wrestling with this passage. By nature, I don't necessarily concern myself with other people's problems. I don't want to step into the mess. I kind of love efficiency. I love my schedule. I love getting things done. I love knowing what I'm supposed to be doing and when I'm supposed to be doing it. And looking around at the mess or concerning myself with other people's needs, it's not my natural tendency. I, felt, I, mean, I was just telling my wife the other night, I felt like such the wrong person to be preaching on this passage. It just wrecked me. Uh, so much so that on Friday, I was driving up here to church to work on this sermon. And as I was pulling into our driveway, there was a broken down car. And uh, Anthony, who I, I love, and he just, he's, he should be preaching this message today. He was out of his car helping those people, helping them figure out the jumper cable thing and a tow thing and some of those options. And I, he just tells me that. And I just stopped and I was like, well, Anthony's got it. He's here. It's good. I need to go work on my sermon. I'm going to go do that. But inside, I was just like, gosh, how would I have wanted to be treated if my car was broken down? And it, you know, gosh, how, how oblivious, how dumb am I almost? Like, I left a moment to, like, treat someone the way I wanted to be treated so I could go write a sermon about treating people the way I'd want to be treated. <laughs> so, I mean, I can't do this. Like, I'm the wrong guy. I'm the wrong guy to be preaching this this morning. But here, here's... Here's the good news for me and for you if you feel like that too. Jesus is our good Samaritan. Jesus is the one who came to heal you when you were beaten down by the side of the road, when you were broken, when you were left destitute. Jesus is the one who was willing to inconvenience himself for you when he had no responsibility to. He could have just left you by the side of the road. He could have just said, do I have to? He could have just said, what is the minimum? Jesus was willing to pay for all of your care. Jesus was willing to bandage your wounds. Jesus was willing to go to a cross so that you could be healed. Jesus is our good Samaritan. Jesus is the one who, in some ways, makes it possible for me to have a new life, a new nature, where the old Ryan is slowly dying in the grave that Jesus left, because Jesus got out of the grave. I hope you know that if you're here today, Jesus is not dead. He got out of the grave on the third day, and when he left that grave, he left my old dead nature, and he gave me a new heart and a new nature. And because of that new heart and a new nature, the Holy Spirit now dwells inside me like the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in you if you are a Christian. And because of that, you are now able to begin to ask yourself, what would love have me do? Not do I have to. You would be able to begin to look around with Jesus' eyes, Jesus' vision of saying, where's a need and how can I meet it? 
When God the Father now looks at you, he looks at Jesus Christ who did live out the golden rule and you get all his credit for living it out. Let that sink in. The golden rule in some ways is, make, uh, is meant to make you realize that you can't do it. And if you try to live out the golden rule, if you leave here today and say, I've got enough willpower, I've got enough strength, I've got enough intelligence, it will crush you like a slab of granite. You will be crushed under the weight of trying to be perfect, of trying to be something you're not. You will walk out of here burdened with sin and shame and guilt. When in reality, Jesus says, take my righteousness, take my golden rule of performance as yours, and I'll take your sin, and you get a new resurrected life. And in that new resurrected life, you and I have a new nature where we actually can begin to ask that question, not do I have to, but what would love have me do? See, here's, here's the real golden rule. Do unto others what Jesus has already done for you. Do unto others what Jesus has already done for you. And if you're not a believer, this morning what Jesus wants to do for you is he wants to take all of your sin. He wants to take all your brokenness. He wants to take all of your shame. He wants to take all of your guilt. And he wants to give you a new life. Friend, hear me. If you're not a Christian, that's the best thing you're ever going to hear. I promise you that. And if you are a Christian, you're now free, spirit-empowered to ask, what would love have me do? Not do I have to. Let's pray. Jesus, you are our perfect substitute. You are the one who has come into this world and lived a life that we could not live and died a death that belonged exclusively to us. But we don't just worship you as a God who died for us, but you also lived for us. You lived out this golden rule that you treated us way better than we deserve. You treated us the way you knew we would want to be treated. And because of that, you've given us new life. You've given us a new hope. You've given us a new identity. You've given us a new family. You've given us all we could ever need. And God, I just ask for whoever is in this room right now, and they're saying, this sounds new, this sounds different, that you would continue to stir their heart, that they would walk into repentance, that, Lord, they would joyfully and gladly and in full submission and surrender hand over their sin to you and take your righteousness and take the new heart that your spirit provides. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.